Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. We're going to have a wonderful show today. Guy Talk is going to start in about a minute, and I'm excited. We've got the power panel around the table. Dr. Peter Kapsner is here, Pastor Tom Brock, Pastor Tom Parrish, and Justin Jepson. That is today's power lineup. Let us know what subject you'd like us to discuss, any issue, anything from the Bible, any uh, thing that you've been grappling with. Let us take a whack at it. 877-933-2484 is our text line. And I think we're going to take 60 seconds and get Guide Talk underway. Learn about writing and publishing from fiction and nonfiction authors and publishing experts. Network with industry professionals and receive feedback about your writing during a one-on-one appointment with an editor, agent, or author. Get your ticket for the 2020 Northwestern Christian Writers Conference, July 24th and 25th. Tickets are on sale now, and for the month of January, get 20% off the full ticket price. Find out more and register online today at NorthwesternChristianWritersConference.com. Do you have a story to share? We'd love to hear how Faith Radio impacts your life. Leave us a message on our Faith Line at 877-933-2484. I love Faith Radio and listen to it all the time. And I'm grateful for all that you do. And thank you for all that you do. The Faith Radio Faith Line, a place to share your story. 877-93-FAITH. That's 877-933-2484. All right, let us know what questions you have for the guys, 877-933-2484. Let's start with a question that's popped up. Why are so many Gen Zers atheists? Hmm. Well, first of all, what's a Gen Zer? I've never heard of that. What am I? Well, an, what am I, the answer man? <laughs> <laughs> yes, you are. Come on, what? you ask the question. I don't know what a Gen Zer is. Well, G- yeah, Gen Z, say, yeah, it would be anyone that's, that was born to roughly... You know, two thousand to present oh. to present day. So oh, okay, this would be our our you know junior, senior, high schoolers, and then and and then a lot of our our, our college, most of our college students are Gen Zs. Really, mm-hmm. and so, they're atheists. Some of them. Well, uh, <laughs> some yes, but you know, I think there's there's so many different reasons. Um, you know, when you talk about different generations leaving the faith and different trends, but. You know, I think one of the one of the pieces that I've read and researched on for Gen Zs. Um, and this is somewhat true of millennials, so I'm an older millennial, but, um, and obviously hang out with Gen Z's every day, uh, being at the University of Northwestern. Um, and one part of it, I think that, that I've noticed that has stood out is, um, the, the lack of, of, of authentic mentorship and modeling of what a, a commitment to Christ looks like, um, just in the practical day to day living. I, I think, I think Gen Z's are good at calling other generations bluff 
of just kind of propositional truths of saying, well, this is what's true. Just believe it and settle it and then be fine with it. But they want to know how does this actually work itself out in the, in my, in my everyday life. And not that other generations aren't wrestling with it or haven't wrestled with that, mm-hmm. but I think Gen Z's um, are, are, is also the most ethnically diverse generation. Um, they're going to be the, become the most, the largest generation that, that, we, that we've seen um, uh, in, in human history uh, or in, in the United States. And, uh, and so um, there's a, they're getting hit with a lot of different perspectives um, all across our country and all across the world. And so mm-hmm. I think they need, they need a bearing and they need an anchor and a rubric to know how to interpret everything that they're facing. Mm-hmm. When you think about it, Joe, how many pastors and teachers have you run into claim to be, you know, leaders of the word, preachers of the word, that actually preach or teach with authority? The vast majority are passing information on. They want to be loving and accepting of everyone. Everything's okay so long as you're good. I mean, I've heard of it. It doesn't matter what church I go to. And I've been to a lot of them since I've been retired, looked around. It is frightening what I'm hearing because Jesus doesn't really fit in a whole lot of those churches unless he's working for peace and justice. But apart from that, there's not much authority left. And people, if they don't see authority, they're not going to respond to it. Yeah, I think, uh, too, Justin, you said something really important in the midst of, of what you're suggesting. Is I, I, do, I think we underestimate the number of potential narratives about what is important in life that they are exposed to compared to my generation. And what I mean by that is crashing in their phones all day long and mm-hmm. crashing through the Internet. The world has become such a small place. And because that's true, there are competing narratives all day long. And I, and I th- dare I say that sometimes the narratives that the church has offered about what is this beautiful invitation to follow Jesus may not actually represent what is the narrative of the beautiful invitation to follow Jesus. And so sometimes there's this atheistic resistance that is rejecting a story mm-hmm. that may not fully represent what the beautiful kingdom is about. And so they think they're rejecting God when actually they're rejecting a conception of God that just isn't compelling. But it doesn't mean you change the, the, the question. I think the church needs to reexamine its narrative sometimes because the, I know for my students, they are the first to call baloney on me if I'm coming up with some Christian cliche or just quoting or spouting some of the 30 popular verses without really getting deeply into the text and the narrative and the wonder and the beauty that was in Jesus's invitation to follow me. I think we've lost sight of that. I mean, clearly, Tom, there's the whole idea of the affirming church, but I think even the churches that are staying tethered to the word hardly are representing sometimes what the, what the invitation is. And my students are living in a place of they hope there is hope, but I don't know if they really truly know what the hope is. Well, you think about it. Most pastors have become CEOs. Yeah, exactly. They're the, not pastors. The business mentality of the church has a huge impact on they're this. They're not, not teachers of the word, really. I mean, there's some that are really good teachers of the word, John Piper and others. But the vast majority are running from one thing to another. And therefore, all they get is the surface. And so we're good with the cliches. We may even get to the second level, go a little deeper. But if they're listening to their phones, they're listening to the Internet or whatever, they can undermine a lot of that teaching mm-hmm. real fast. So... What, what what specifically do you do if you want to reach someone who's 18 years old that maybe didn't we didn't have to do two generations ago? I mean, so far yeah. you're saying be as honest as you can because they'll challenge you if you're not. What else? I'm going to ask uh, Justin. Maybe some of these are some of these Gen Zers um, hearing more about what Christians are against versus what mm. Christians are for. And there's other pagan gods that are available that maybe weren't available 15 or 20 years ago, like Mother yeah, Earth. Right, right. Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, I think it's um, that's a, that's a really good uh, distinction. And I think, again, not necessarily uh, only Gen Zs are wrestling with that. I think other generations are, have wrestled with that. I think that's when you kind of look at the history of 
you know, fundamentalism going into, uh, you know, evangelicalism and all the confusion that's surrounding what it means to really be a Christian. Um, you know, I, yeah, I think, I think they don't want to see uh, the church kind of just standing their ground and developing these, these walls and trying to protect and try to keep out. Um, I think they, were, they really want to see where's the well and where's the center, mm-hmm. where's life. And, and and let's go there and and to not draw these who's in who's out but where where's where's their wholeness where's their life and 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 I think to show like what we're for what we're against you know Tom to answer your question what what more can I do you know and again it's inviting them into relationship yeah uh-huh. yeah uh, you know it's it's not so much telling them but it's 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 hey come here let me show you let me show you yeah. how this how this and, works and you know you wonder what God's up to in heaven sometimes because. Europe used to be strongly Christian, and it's gone. Uh, America, it's it's going, but Asia and Africa, Christianity's booming more, you know, more than ever in those areas. And so, you know, like Paul mm-hmm. talks about, there was the time of the Jews, the time of the Gentiles, and at the end, there'll be, you know, kind of. You just kind of wonder, is God moving? Elsewhere, you know, I don't. I mean, He's here, of course, but you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. That where, where is the gospel spreading, and it's mm-hmm. not here. Yeah, I think that's a really important point, Tom, because I think one of the things that some of those other places in the world share from a commonality standpoint is uh, still a a connected family structure to Justin's point that there is a sense in which you are part of a multi-generational story that's beyond your own. And we've made sort of this God of this individualistic, be whatever you want to be, you need to find your own way. And we're serving sort of the idolatry of self-expression and and you've Mm -hmm. got to find it. But I, I mean, you see it, I'm sure, Justin, the most pervasive characteristic I would say of the Gen Z students in my classroom is loneliness, mm. complete fragmentation from any other story other than their own. And it's killing them in, in those places. But in other parts of the world, you don't have that hyper individualism. There's still mm-hmm. the sense of the family yeah. unit. And also, too, there's there's a lot less economic distractions. There's a, there's more suffering and there there tends to be more reason to look to something bigger than beyond oneself. I mean, we can we can keep ourselves occupied with all kinds of different idolatrous realities just simply because of the economic opportunity. Do they readily admit to being lonely? Yeah. I, when I asked my classes, uh, I said, how many of you would, would express yourselves as being lonely or isolated, um, mm-hmm. depressed, anything like that? Uh, if I have stud- 30 students, it's probably on average 26 to 28 that raise their hands. Really? And, and it's so interesting, right? Because they're the most connected generation mm-hmm. socially through media profiles and platforms. And yet it's not themselves that they're representing out in the social media stuff. So uh, it's some version of themselves and they don't feel known or seen. And I, it, the, the loneliness epidemic is incredible to me. Yeah. And I, I think it's a longing for intimacy. <clears throat> really know, and I mean, it's defined intimacy as intimacy. I think there's a lot of shame, there's a lot of baggage, there's a lot of facades and masks. And, you know, I don't, I, same with you, Peter, I, I sit across with so many students that they're trying to deal with this by themselves. Yeah. And, and they, 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 they don't know how or who to reach out to for help. And I mean, the fact of the, the spike of, uh, of anxiety and depression, uh, that, that loneliness feeds into that. Mm-hmm. They want to know that they're connected to something bigger than themselves and social media gives the illusion of that reality, right? But it it falls so far short. They actually needed to see see it fleshed out. Oh, go ahead. No, go ahead, Tom. Over forty years ago, I think I got a glimpse of the answer. I was in seminary. We had a pastor there. His name was William Lautai from Nigeria, and I got to be a friend with William. And one day we're having coffee, and a bunch of us are gathered around. We said, "William, what's church like in Nigeria?" And he said, "Well, I'm a circuit riding pastor, so I go from church to church." And he said, we usually start about 9 in the morning because people walk 
long distances to come to church. Well, what do you do, William? Well, we come together and we sing and we pray, and then I, I preach from the Word. And then when I get done, I say, okay, go out and do it in the village for the next three, four hours, what Jesus said, and then come back and we'll talk about it. Mm. <laughs> and we all kind of sat there and looked at him like, what? Mm-hmm. But that's exactly how they do it. Here's the problem. We give people intellectual understanding of Jesus. We don't give them the real understanding of Jesus in terms of how we forgive, how we love, how we serve, how we sacrifice, and how we stand up for the truth even when it's not popular. All right, we're going to take a little break. Tom, you go out into the hallway here at Faith Radio and you do it. (laughs) We'll come back in 90 seconds and we'll talk about it. Guy Talks Underway, we've got uh, room for lots of your questions. Let us know what they are. 877-933-2484. Be right back. Back to Guide Talk. Justin Jepson is here. Dr. Peter Kastner, Pastor Tom Brock, Pastor Tom Parrish. What a great power panel. Question from my wingman Terry is talking about the idea that uh, the woman with the blood hemorrhage is healed by touching his cloak. Verse 30 says, Immediately Jesus, perceiving in himself that the power proceeded from him, had gone forth. Let's talk about that power now. Um, it seems that the people that he touched and healed. Uh, either became his follower or wanted to. Um, Jesus gave the apostles uh, the apostles' authority over demons, disease, and sickness. Then in Matthew ten twenty, Jesus says to them, "For it is not you who speak, but it is the Holy Spirit of the Father who speaks in you." And the, so the question then would yeah, what be: Did Jesus heal and give authority, or his power by the Holy Spirit? Yes. Okay, let's move on. Thanks for clearing that one up. What I mean by that, I think sometimes we try to make it an either-or statement, and I think it's often a both-and, because I think on one hand, you know, Jesus is two natures in one, and so he's fully God, but he's also fully man. And I think he was living as an example of what could be possible for us as well when we receive the Holy Spirit. So he was empowered as the perfect man by the Holy Spirit um, in the same way. As Peter, you were saying before, his ministry didn't get in, begin until the, his baptism and the Holy Spirit descended upon him. And the same way the church wasn't born and the ministry didn't really happen until the Holy Spirit came on Pentecost. And that's why Jesus said, remain in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. So I think it was a, a mysteriously both and. That's Yeah, no, agreed. I, I mean, I think if we could rewind ourselves back into that first century world, and you said it so well, Justin, is that to become a follower of Jesus, if, if you said yes, because that was always the invitation, right? He just pointed at people and said, follow me. If you could hear what was in and underneath that invitation, there would have been probably three things that would be expected of you. <coughs> One is that you would be able to begin to see the world naturally the way that Jesus saw it. You would become his apprentice in living, use what we talked about earlier. And and so Jesus, even the way you understood the world around you would, would take on the characteristics of your rabbi, of your master, of your teacher. You would also be, uh, begin to have sort of um, the character, a true authentic character, not a, a hypocritical one, but the realities of Jesus would begin to be part of who you are as well from the inside out. And the third thing, because I think those first two, we can sort of get our head around in Western culture, but the third thing was that you would have increasingly the power and authority that Jesus demonstrated as well. And so when they were to go to Samaria in, uh, in the ends of the earth in the book of Acts, as you rightly pointed out, they were to wait until the Holy Spirit would give that kind of power and authority. I will say this, and I've said this before on air, in Western culture, I did not grow up 
with any kind of even invitation of the idea of what does it mean to start walking in the authority and the power of the Spirit that could even possibly heal. Uh, there's, I think, some very understandable cynicism and skepticism because of all of the sort of charlatans out there trying to make claims about these sorts of things. But I don't even know how to start. But, Tom, you were saying off air that, I mean, you've, you've seen people freed from demon possession. I have. And uh, not only overseas, but in this country. Yeah. And what's interesting about it, I mean, in my ministry, I've had maybe 10 to 12 people that have shown up at the church door. I never met them. And I said, why are you here? And they said, we heard a voice hmm. that said, go in and talk to him. And so they come in, they tell me their problems, what's going on, and I do all the normal things about if you've been at the doctor and whatever. And then we began to pray, and then sometimes the demonic would emerge. What happened is, using the power of the name of Jesus, I've seen people set free from that, and I never had to encourage them to come to church. They wanted to be there because they had been encountered by the real Jesus. It was not what I did. It was the name I brought. Hmm. And you think about Jesus' ministry, here's part of the problem. Context is the problem for the Bible for us. Mm-hmm. You know, Philippians 2 says, when Jesus became a man, he gave up all of his literally godly powers and became like us in all things. When he ascended and the Holy Spirit came at Acts, it's interesting because after the Holy Spirit comes in the book of Acts, through the rest of the New Testament, there's very little talk about the Holy Spirit. There's talk about Jesus. And Colossians 1.15 gives Jesus all the credit for creation for everything we have, for life, and so all the power is invested back in him. So there's a, a, you're right, it's a both and, but you can't look at his life and ministry and reach conclusions on when he was a man. It's only after the whole thing is done and the Holy Spirit's come that we start to get a real picture. Yeah, because I think I heard what was embedded in that question a little bit. Was it the Spirit working through Jesus that did the healing, or did he have the authority himself to do the healing? And I think your answer, Justin, you know, yes, is correct. But I think to your point, Tom, there is that passage in Philippians, a very compelling one that says that though he was in very nature God, he didn't consider that equality something to be hung on to. Rather, he let it go. And theologians use a fancy word called extreme kenosis to, to describe the fact that Jesus literally emptied himself. So he was beholden to it in some sense and dependent upon the outside reality of the Spirit working in his life to see these miracles come to be. Now, I, I don't know that I would teach that dogmatically, but these are some right. of the questions people have understand, uh, understandably wrestled with. And I, I think within that question, too, maybe the <coughs> listener is getting at, is can we do the same works that Jesus yes. did? Right. And I think it's very clear in John 14 that yep. the answer to that is yes and even greater works. Right. Which is to wrap our mind around that, but I think what Jesus is saying, even greater works, I mean, what could we do possibly greater than what Jesus did? But I think what he's talking about, instead of just Jesus now doing it, yeah, it's going to be the multiplication of his disciples doing the works of Christ all throughout the world. And that's greater than any one person, any one man can do. Yeah, and I would suggest that that's one of the remedies maybe that would help Gem Z. I'm not talking about like miraculous the healings and all stuff, but I would say some manifesta- manifestation of the reality of Jesus that comes into our actual characters, not our pretend characters, our ability to like see the world with wisdom that sort of insightfully cuts through the baloney of our day, but some manifestation of power as well. I mean, these are the things that do turn hearts. I mean, Tom, you said when people would get delivered of a demon, they become followers, and that's what we see in the text over and over again. All right, gentlemen, here's another question. Uh, This is, when we get to heaven, is there a further role for the Holy Spirit? And you know, that question makes me think of when you go to Europe and you go to the great thousand-year-old cathedrals, often there'll be a big painting up or a big carved statue of the Trinity, and you'll see three thrones, God the Father on one, Jesus on the other, 
and on the other they'll have a dove. And, you know, some and and you you get the question now and then. Well, you know, will will I actually see God when I get to heaven? And the answer is yes, in some way. Uh, but will we see? Three thrones with three personages on. I don't know. I, mm-hmm. I I think we'll see in a sense God the Father and God the Son. Will we see the Holy Spirit? I don't know. The Holy Spirit is not a dove. He just appeared once as a dove uh, at the baptism of Christ. But will we actually see the Spirit? You know, some of this we just don't know. Yeah. But but all three persons will eternally be God up in right. heaven. You know, the Holy Spirit won't. We still need the Holy Spirit to be God, and He always will be. But you know. Um, well, and I think sometimes too, and this kind of goes to my, you know, is it the either or? I think sometimes we try to parse out that the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit have different roles mm-hmm. when the Bible is very clear that the Trinity is involved in everything. Yes. Trinity is at creation. Trinity is mm-hmm. involved. It was through the eternal spirit that Christ offered himself up at the cross. It says in Hebrews, um, it's, it's, and the Father was there. So the Trinity is involved in everything. Yeah. So I would say it's if the Holy Spirit doesn't have a role in heaven, then neither does Jesus or the Father. And so it's, mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. Every, everyone. There was an old heresy, what is it, three or four hundred? It's called Sabellianism, supposedly taught by Sabellius, although I'm not sure that's fair. If you ever, but the, the view is that for a while God will be God the Father. Then maybe at 12 noon he'll become God the Son for a while. <laughs> then maybe 3 p.m. he'll be the Holy Spirit. Yeah. And the three persons are three temporary modes. Mm. It's called modalism. modalism. It's, it's a heresy. Sadly, it's what is taught by United Pentecostals. Mm. And, and so you want to make sure you go to a church that teaches there's only one God. In God are three eternal persons. Mm. God has always been Father, Son, Holy Spirit mm. and always will be. So mm-hmm. the Holy Spirit will definitely have a role in heaven, mm-hmm. whether we'll see him or, you know, how that works. I don't know. Yeah. All right. Uh, here's a practical question. Uh, woke up this morning. It's 10 below. Who has long underwear on? I do. <laughs> I do. I wish I did. I wish I did. I was going to say, yes, <laughs> I did. Oh, Tom and I, you're I wish I do right now. It's kind of cold yeah, in the studio. Yeah. It's We're kind of dry over here. <laughs> <laughs> Next to the window. <laughs> I know, Justin, I kind of jammed you in the back there. Right? The weather oh. outside is frightful, Bill. It is very but, frightful. But talk Thursday with the guys is so delightful. I, I couldn't agree more. Do you have a little hymn well, you want to sing? Is Tom going to sing again? Yeah, I was going to say, Tim, I loved listening to you from overseas last week. Same for us, Tom. Because we're going to break in about, we're gonna go to break in about 45 seconds. So I've got questions, but I can't get started on a question until... We go to our hard break. So, so do you want to? If you the weather little, outside is frightful, no, I don't want if you to sing that. Thursday is <laughs> no, so no, no, delightful. No, no. What, what kind of long underwear? Like, what's the material? <laughs> <laughs> I like. I have a like merino wool. That's it what was, I have it, on. It wicks away. See, oh, there yeah, you go. It's really yep, good. It's good stuff. <laughs> so, do you want to sing? You got a little uh, hymn in you? Let it snow. Let it oh, snow. No, okay. let <laughs> all right. This is your last week. All right. If you have a question for us, any serious ones, of course, let us know what they are. You can send a text question to eight seven seven nine three three. 2484, I'll give you that number again, 877-933-2484. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to the show. Guy Talks Underway. Justin Jep- Jepson is in the studio along with Dr. Peter Kapsner, Pastor Tom Brock, and Pastor Tom Parrish. Gentlemen, so nice to have you all here. Uh, here's a question that came in from a listener, and it starts this way. What should a Protestant wife do when her husband converts to Catholicism? We both love Jesus, but it becomes complicated to plug into a church when one of us doesn't agree. And how do you teach our kids when dogmas disagree? I think that as the wife, my husband is the spiritual leader, and I should follow him, but I cannot become a Catholic church member because I don't believe what they do. Yeah, and this was the house I was raised in pretty much. My dad was Catholic. He went to church every Sunday. Mom was Lutheran, and we all went to church every Sunday. We were all baptized Catholic and then all raised Lutheran, and I... then we'd all come home. We'd all go to church every Sunday and then come home and pretty much never talk about it. On a rare occasion, mm. we would. But I think that was mm. mom and dad's deal. You can raise them, but I'll get them baptized Catholic. And and the tragedy of that was it just kept things from being talked about. You know, when you can't go to church as a family, you don't hear the, you know, you, you just, it was just too bad. And this is a hard question. I mean, I'm a Lutheran. I don't doubt there are many Catholic people that know the Lord. Personally, because of indulgences, purgatory, praying to the saints, uh, uh, scapulars, I cannot be a Catholic. Uh, again, I'm not doubting people that are a Catholic. Many people are, are saved. Now, you could, we could do a whole show on are those people saved because of or in spite of the Catholic Church. <laughs> that would be a whole different show. But and there again, a lot of Catholics kind of can even be evangelical. Um, but again, is that because of the Catholic Church, or are they getting that elsewhere? But I would encourage people, marry somebody that's on the same spiritual planet so you can go to church together. And how how does she handle submitting to her husband if he's a Catholic and she's a Protestant? You know, he's probably going to allow her to go to whatever church she wants, probably. Mm-hmm. And sadly, that's probably what you're going to have to live with. But th- this ship has already sailed. He converted to Catholicism yeah. in the context yeah. of the marriage. I, so I have a friend who was an evangelical Christian with me, a great friend of mine in Florida. He left evangelicalism, has become, I mean, he's more he's more Catholic than the Pope. That's He's just into this like crazy. Mm-hmm. And he just has talk after talk after talk with me on this. And it's like, it it's just, it, it's not cult-like, but it's almost cult-like how, how into it is. And I'm thinking, his poor wife, who's an evangelical Christian, how is she handling her new husband, who is now a Catholic? And I don't know what she's doing, but yeah, so there you go. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I, this is one of the trickiest questions I think we've had in all of these months of Guy Talk, and uh, there's so many different relational dynamics and that are at play. I think it resists any one silver bullet answer. I, we, we were talking just off air a little bit about the question about how many of us have been raised Catholic and we're in the Catholic Church and have a familiarity with it, and I'm among them. I mean, I went to Catholic elementary school. and Three of us here. Yeah. Yeah, and, and then my parents became Protestant when I was 10, so I st- started protesting at Mass. I didn't know why, but I was as, a, as an elementary school kid and kind of grew up in both worlds a little bit. And I remember a season of time in my early 30s where, as you've rightly pointed out, Tom, I think there's some significant theological things to resist within some of the Catholic history and framework that have proven out to be those things that really uh, Luther did need to do some rightly ordered reformation. But I think what I realized is that I had thrown out too much of the baby with the bathwater, that all of our Christian writings and extant literature available to us came through the Catholic Church in mm-hmm. the first 1,500 years pre, pre-Luther. And, and I began to find some things within those long streams of faith 
that the Catholic Church has still held the repository of mm-hmm. that were incredibly meaningful for me and my Protestant mm-hmm. faith. And I kind of started living a little bit in the crossover world. I couldn't belong to one and I couldn't belong to neither. It was like I almost became sort of this spiritual mutt of some kind <laughs> where I began to you know mm-hmm. take on some of the things of the Catholic Church that I was really appreciative yeah. and, of. And I don't want to overdo this. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I just you reminded me when I was 12 sitting in confirmation class. <laughs> with our Missouri Synod Lutheran pastor who was extremely conservative. And there I was with my my Catholic dad at home, and he's the, the Lutheran pastor is talking about the Catholicism. Finally, I put my hand up. Uh, pastor Ruff, um, can you be saved and go to heaven if you're not a Lutheran? And I remember there was a long pause. I think there are other Christians out there. There are churches like that, mm-hmm. denominations yeah. where we're sure we're saved, but, you know, yeah. we hope there are other. That's way too overboard. Yeah, I, and, and I think just, just quickly in light of this family relationship, too, I mean, I think we're living not too far removed from generational history where really to marry between oh. Catholic and Protestant, I mean, that was absolutely my scandalous. Mom and dad, and, my mom and dad caused a scandal a little bit in yeah. Columbus, Nebraska when they got married. That was a big no-no. I'm sure. Grandma and grandpa were not happy. But, um, boy, that's no big deal at all anymore. Well, and I think if they could, if, they, if this relationship, they could find even some of those places of common ground that mm-hmm. I referenced. Like, mm-hmm. are there some things within the long, beautiful history part of the Catholic Church that she can sort of engage with with her husband in that point and enter into his world a little yeah. bit? And then vice versa, there's going to be some beautiful things within the Protestant denomination that, yeah. that he can find to just find some common ground as a starting point. Who knows where the journey is mm-hmm. going to go from there? But it has to start by saying there probably are some very beautifully rightly ordered things about God's kingdom within each tradition, mm-hmm. even given the corruption within each tradition. Mm-hmm. There's mm-hmm. still some, Can they focus together and find some of those things and then maybe start journeying from there? Yeah, that's so, yeah, well said. And I, I feel hesitant to offer, you know, should this listener do this or that? But I think the my own experience too, and my, my mom grew up Lutheran, my dad grew up Catholic, and I I mentioned off air that they got married in both churches and then decided mm. to marry or decided to raise my sister and I Catholic. We were raised Catholic. Um, I left Catholic church when I was in high school, went to a Protestant church and went to an evangelical institution, Northwestern back in the day, Northwestern college. And then my parents ended up leaving the Catholic church and then came to the church that I was on staff at for, and now they're at a Baptist church. And so all that to say, Peter, to Peter's uh, point, there's so much more, and I've learned too, so much more in common and such a rich picture of Christian history could be displayed for this family by having that exchange and and, and focusing. If, if there's maybe one thing that I would say that if this, this husband and wife could really agree on is allow Scripture to be the final authority. Mm-hmm. Um, and if they, can, if they can agree there and then really hold loosely maybe some of the other dogmas and mm-hmm. other things that are taught, and both the Protestant side and on the Catholic side, but if they can continue to bring themselves back to the Word of God, um, I think they're going to do really well. Mm. Part of my concern is, at this point for them, is that they both say they love Jesus. So why can't they find some answers? And and I'm, I'm we think the dogma is that diverse that there's no answers. Then there are Christian counselors, both mm. Roman Catholic and Protestant, who will sit down and give you an honest assessment what's going on. I'm working on a, a material right now. I don't know if I'll put it in a book or writing, but it's on where I see that I look back on all the premarital counseling I did. Here's the one area I failed in, and I see everybody fail on that. We let people go into marriage, and we never talk about expectations. And couples go in with all kind of unwritten expectations that they want to hold the other person accountable to. And so when these things happen, I mean, it's, it's kind of like getting bushwhacked. 
It just comes out of nowhere, and there are no good answers. I would really encourage this couple, if they talk to me, to find a neutral counselor they can sit with, really talk yes. with, pray yes. together with. Because if they both love Jesus, Jesus can work this out. Yep. And if you're not married yet and you're listening to this, make sure you have a long talk with your fiancé about how are you going to raise the kids, what church are you going to go to. I, I, I wouldn't want to go marry someone who was not on the same page spiritually. And, yeah. Yeah, that gets into that idea of being unequally yoked, yes. you know, right? Because the idea of taking on a yoke is that what is your master? What is it that to which you're going to attend? And so mm-hmm. if you're unequally yoked in some of these things, that is going to be tricky. But I think that's great advice too, Tom, to find a trusted counselor that if Jesus is actually real and they both claim to love Jesus, it's going to sort, it might be a tricky journey, but it, it has the possibility of sorting out. Another listener has jumped in and said, we have friends that were in the situation before marriage. They agreed to go to a priest and to a Lutheran pastor. They asked both of them to please explain church doctrine by using the Bible only. No writings of Luther, no papal writings. They could only use the Bible. The priest Uh told them that he couldn't do that. He needed to use the papal works. The pastor had no problem whatsoever. They went to another priest and he had the same problem. At that point, Paul agreed that they needed to go to the Lutheran Church. Mm-hmm. Good, mm-hmm. good. Mm-hmm. Although now, now, which Lutheran Church? Good point. <laughs> the, I, I'll just quickly say it, and I'll get yeah. off this point. But part of my big part of my ministry is talking about the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, which is the largest branch of Lutheranism, which has become so heretical it it just it puts me into fits. And uh, so if you're going to stay Lutheran, join the Association of Free Lutherans, join the Missouri Synod, maybe join an LCMC church, but stay far away from the ELCA Lutheran denomination. And the, the, bod- the bodies that merged to form that denomination used to be good, but that was 1988, and it has become—we could do 10 shows on, on the incredible heresies now that are reigning over that denomination. So mm. be careful! Mm. Okay. What I appreciate about that question, too, is, you know, there's what's called sort of the accretion effect where there's this idea that a tradition gets layered on tradition, gets layered on tradition. And so I think that's a really interesting and helpful question. Where in, in Scripture can you anchor what it is that you're practicing or what it is that you're teaching, I think, is a great question that cuts through some of that accretion effect. Mm-hmm. Another question here from a listener heard for the first time the idea that Jesus did not know he was God until he was baptized by John. <laughs> also, that he was a disciple of John the Baptist for a while. This was a professor from an evangelical university. How widespread is this among evangelical scholars? Gosh, I haven't I haven't heard that laid out that way. I mean, I know we sometimes wrestle for almost, I wouldn't say fun, but we wonder in class when Jesus was in swaddling clothes, you know, at that point, was he sitting here thinking, man, I mean, I'm God and here I am hanging down here, even precognitive thought. And that's a funny example, and yet it does speak deeply to the question. Mm-hmm. And uh, did Jesus sort of, did his messianic reality sort of slowly dawn on him? Or like, how did this process work itself and, out? And it does say that Jesus grew uh, in wisdom and stature. And I haven't heard a good so, sermon on that one I, like, and, you really know, ever. Did, did four-year-old Jesus know he was God? I don't know the answer to that. Right. I don't know that anybody I've ever heard well, have said he, he was, didn't know he was God till he was 30. That's nowhere in the or Bible. Or a disciple of John. Yeah, that, yeah. yeah that's nowhere in the Bible. So. I don't, well, I've often wondered, I mean, it's a lot of this is speculation. Right. I think it's scripture really isn't clear. When did Jesus have a God consciousness? You know, he knew that who he fully was. I think there was a development there. But I mean, as I'm raising, as my wife and I are raising, a, we have a toddler at home. <laughs> we just kind of wonder, you know, Jesus, scripture does talk about he had brothers and he had sisters. And, 
they had to have known a difference, right? Like, how come Jesus never throws a tantrum? And how does Jesus never get to timeout? How come, or what, you know, I just have to, you know, we have to kind of wonder. And I think it's okay we can exercise a sanctified imagination on some of those things, but just be careful to hold them loosely. Yes, (laughs) real loose. Yeah, we were just talking in my class this morning about uh, the, uh, there's a a word called midrash that the ancient Jewish rabbis used to do where they would kick around the questions that the text was not prepared to answer, but they would wonder about them anyway. such as like who was Cain possibly afraid of if he was one of the first of the children of Adam and Eve when he was going to get exiled into these cities? Where did those cities come from? The Bible doesn't tell us that mm-hmm. stuff. And so they could midrash their way around it and have some fun with it. But at mm-hmm. the end of the day, it was going to be almost impossible to teach something dogmatically around it. It's interesting. Human nature. We want to know what we've not been told. We want information that nobody's got. We're kind of Gnostics when you get mm-hmm. right down to it. And we like that secret knowledge. The problem is... I had one professor, well, one Bible pastor tell me, Tom, simply do what the Bible says and what Jesus has told you, and don't worry about the rest. And I've discovered after doing this for 40-some years, doing what Jesus said in itself is a struggle to forgive others, to love others, to serve others. And I think about those questions, too, but I don't debate them as much as I used to because Mm -hmm. they don't go anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. All All right, let me take a little break. We're... Guy Talk is open to questions. Let us know what you might have for us. 877-933-2484. I'll give it again. 877-93-FAITH. 877-933-2484. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show. Guy Talks Underway, Justin Jepson, Dr. Peter Kapsner, and the two Pastor Toms, Brock and Parrish. They're all here. We're having an uh, interesting discussion. And let us know if you've got a topic for us to cover. We'd love to hear from you. 877-93-FAITH. Got calls coming in, and we're not even taking calls. <laughs> i got to tell you, that makes me very well, nervous. Listen, uh, Bill, when I did the radio show... yeah. And we we had a live call-in show. And if we wanted to get people calling in, you hit one of three topics. Catholicism or baptism Baptism. or predestination. And boy, things would light up. So my guess is we got Catholic phone calls coming in. (laughs) Uh, Here's a question. When calculating my 10% tithe, would I base it off my gross or net? Uh, we have fun with that question in class. Uh, okay. Again, I mean, the text is unclear, and and I don't. I mean, I would love to hear Tom's. You guys probably have studied this and even had to preach about these sorts well, of things. You know, here's here's the thought: Is tithing even required by New Testament uh, in the New Testament? Paul never. Paul says the New Testament uh, principle is Paul says, "Give as you prosper." So I don't think we're required. Now, quickly, I'm going to say this though: If the Old Testament Jews who do, were required to tithe. If they were moved to give 10%, do we know more or less of the love of God in the New Testament? Would we be moved to give less than they gave? I think we, I think at least we should be tithing. But can I point to a verse that says you as a Christian are required to tithe? Paul says give as you prosper, which probably means we give more than 10%. Mm-hmm. Well, the question is, how thankful are we? Mm-hmm. I mean, if I've got, if I'm making 100000 a year, how much am I supposed to give back to the Lord? Well, I know a woman who gave $50,000 back to the Lord every year. She lived frugally. She had one car forever and ever, wore the same dress. 
She paid off people's mortgages. She helped people with a variety of hospital things. She'd go to the bank, get a cashier's check, and send the cashier's check. They never know, knew who gave it. Wow. At her funeral, her sister got up and said, Mary and Bill, remember we couldn't make your house payment? Well, yeah. Who made that house payment? Mm. And for a year and a half, she made the monthly house payment unbeknown to them. Now, the question is not 10%. It's what is Jesus calling you to do? For some mm. people, that might be 90%. Yeah. I was just, you know, pointed to Second Corinthians nine. So, you know, Paul says the point is this, which I just love. <laughs> he cuts right to it, right? Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Mm. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he is made up in his mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion. And then we know the end of this phrase for for, for this verse: for God mm-hmm. loves a cheerful giver. So there mm. used to be churches many years ago. I haven't heard about this recently that at the end of the year would post in the narthex for every member to see what each person had given. <laughs> that's called under compulsion. And their attendance also was cut by 10%. <laughs> yeah. And in the Greek text, you can also translate cheerful as hilarious giver. Yeah, It's hilarity. It's mm-hmm. so far out of bounds from what people normally do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, here's a question from a listener. Um, how do I engage in faith discussions with my family who still attend ELCA churches. She used to attend, but now goes to an evangelical church. Uh, Tom and Tom, well, you guys are on. <laughs> I encourage everybody to go to exposingtheelca.com. Article after article after article. I, I just did a TV show on the most recent heresy in the ELCA. And go to my webpage, if you would, pastorstudy.org. Watch our TV shows. It, it, it's, this, it's become so wacko left of center that it's hard to believe some of this stuff, but exposing the ELCA.com will give you all the information you need. <laughs> well, I used to overwhelm people with information. There's nothing wrong with it. You need to know mm-hmm. the information. But I learned very simply, I had to start listening to what they said and ask questions. And what I found is that, as my mother would say, if you give people enough rope, they'll hang themselves. Well, what I did is I stepped saying, where did you get that information? What is that based on? Where can I find that in the Bible? What would Jesus do with that? And I've been amazed at how many people, even in the ELCA, when we begin those discussions, will say, I really don't know. Mm-hmm. And I will say, well, when you find an answer, please let me know. Well, and what I, I just had this discussion two hours ago with a friend of mine, a Lutheran pastor, who also finally got out. But he was talking about his, his children go to an ELCA church. And and he said, should I? And now the, his wife wants to go there because of the grandkids. And I said, his name's Leanne. I said, but Leanne, you're doing the right thing by refusing to join that church because you're being a witness that you don't want your offering dollars to pay for abortions and sex change operations. Now, you know, I don't think any of that comes up in that church. But, but by Leon refusing to join an ELCA he, a church, he's being a witness to the rest of his family. And like, you, like somebody, most of the ELCA People have no idea no, where their money goes. They don't. All right. I feel like God is mad at me and very disappointed with me. So I've gone underground with some of my issues. I don't feel worthy. Mm. Yeah, that's, um, again, we just, we started talking about that in class again, and it references back to something that we were saying earlier in the show, that sometimes we think we've been exposed to the Christian story and, uh, and maybe we haven't actually heard the story at all. And, um, I think there's this unfortunate thing that God sort of has this pervasive anger uh, that is just looking to take out anybody who may be engaged in sin as opposed. And then we, we, we sort of wonder, what do we do with his love if that's the case? And, and which, which, of the, which of the gods are we going to get, the happy God or the angry God today? And, and that's really unfortunate uh, on that level. And God's anger is always 
um, at the sin, but not because um, he somehow is insecure and is compromising his holiness and he somehow has to get everybody to buck up and prove that he's holy again. He's angry because it's disfiguring the children that he loves. Mm-hmm. And and so because when Jesus refers to himself as the great physician, there is this desire to have the PA. If you are sick and hurting and you never go to the physician, you're just going to continue to be sick and hurting. But if you believe about the physician, the physician is mostly mad at you about the whole thing and will probably take you to task for it and not even help at all. Of course, you're going to stay in hiding. And so our pictures of God matter substantially in and- these situations. And so the, God's anger is about the disfiguring of the children that he loves. And it's not any different than the anger I might have uh, about something that's disfiguring my own children. And and I think to separate that out is so helpful. The only place to come is into the light because there you are greeted with the grace of God that calls you back into the truth through the healing of God. And what I would encourage this person to do, and we had talked earlier about, you know, what are the good things in the Catholic Church we should probably still hold on to? Yeah. One of them is confession absolution. You know, right. And I think this person needs to come out from under the darkness Bite the bullet, yes. sweat a little bit, but but make an appointment with a pastor or or some Christian that you rec- that you uh, respect, and tell that person your sins. Yeah, get the struggle out, get it out into the uh, light, and then let them pronounce the forgiveness of sins over you. Yeah. I, I think we uh, so much healing happens in confession absolution, and sadly, so infrequently we do it. So I would encourage that person to. It doesn't have to be a pastor or a priest or any. It can be a normal Christian, but find somebody and talk to that person about your sins. I'm dealing with somebody right now that's got the homosexual struggling. Oh, I can't talk to anybody about it. And I run him back saying, you're going to be awfully lonely if you never talk to anybody about this. So, Well, when you think about it, isolation is the devil's playground. Yep. It's right there that can get us to think all the negative thoughts, that there's no hope, there's no future. I had three friends in high school that have all committed suicide. Mm. And it all came down to basically what this person is saying here. And I didn't know. I mean, we lived apart. We moved many thousands of miles apart. And I'm so angry. I didn't get a chance to look them in the eye and say, let me tell you what Jesus really thinks about you. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've got a chart at home that's got about 32 of the descriptions of how Jesus sees us, you know, as his children, as the chosen people, as people that, uh, you know, are ambassadors of the gospel. And we forget about that. We're used to hearing the negative voices. And I've got my most negative voices in myself. So I encourage that person, you know, get to talk to somebody. Do not stay isolated. Because if you do, the devil will get you. Yeah, Yeah, I I would say as well, just to encourage this listener that you're not alone. Um, And what you described, how you feel, were the very people that were attracted to Christ and that Jesus Mm -hmm. welcomed to a table. And he moved them out of isolation and into intimacy. And and I think that when you when you realize that you're not alone, you're going to find a, a I love the words of a Christian pastor and author John Lynch says that what if we could find a place so safe that we could make the worst about us known and we would find that we lo- are loved more, not less in the telling of it. And so when we tell that to others and we enter into community, we're going to we're going to meet the love and the grace and the healing of Christ. But also that's going to be incarnated. Give others the opportunity to incarnate that love to you. And, and to show you and welcome you back into community. But know that you're not alone. Um, Jesus is welcoming you to his table. All right, we just have a couple minutes left. Do you think there's momentum in the Christian journey? Do you think that, mm-hmm. that you, are, you can have momentum, or do you think every day you start new and you need God's mercies and you need his grace? Of course you do. But do you have this swagger that says, I, I had a pretty good day yesterday, and I bet today <laughs> it is going to be every bit as good. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
Don't give me a blank stare at this point. <laughs> uh, next. Yeah. I mean, that's a, a great question. I, I will say this. I mean, I think there's a sense in which um, some of the falsities of life to which I've attended way too much of my time, energy, and effort towards, and you, you see that they don't have pathways that that are helpful at the end of the day, whether it's pursuing a title or a job or, or money or those sorts of things. So I think in that sense, there's momentum. It's harder to go back once you realize the falsity of those things. But at the same time, I'll say I'm at my very worst and most vulnerable right after I've had just like this amazing day, whether it be in the classroom or something like that. I'm like, I, I got this. And I, I've had classes, legitimate classes where I walk in and I say, man, my content is going to be killer today. <laughs> I'm like, I'm going to crush it. And I, and I give all the content and it falls completely yep. flat. And I think God's like, yeah, hang on just a minute here, pal. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I so resonate with that. The, the times where I'm the most vulnerable and weak and discouraged is when, you know, when I'm coming off that that high or yep. that perceived high. So I'd say we don't necessarily have a momentum. And Scripture talks about we're transformed from one degree of glory to another. Mm-hmm. So I can always trust that God has a momentum in what He's doing, and I may not always be aware of it. But to keep meek and humble and broken yeah. and keep moving forward. Okay, so, I got I got to say this is like the fastest hour of yeah. the week. It's over. Yeah. Uh-huh. Can you believe it? Hard to believe. Crazy. Yeah. So, uh, like, gentlemen, thank you. Thank you, Bill. Thank you. No, no, thank you. You know, I'm here every day. But <laughs> I'm going to put guys... long underwear on. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to put like, long underwear on. Uh, uh, that, I didn't even uh, want to think about that. Uh-huh. <laughs> I, I want to thank Justin Jepson and Dr. Peter Kapsner and Pastor Tom Brock and Pastor Tom Parrish for being the power panel today, quality and quantity. That's what I had. Thank you so much, gentlemen. We're going to take a little break, and Hour 2 is coming up with John and Pam Bloom. We call that Deep Thinker Thursday. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.